episode, we're going to take a look at one of the most transformative events in world history, the Industrial Revolution. So the setting, it's 1750, and human society is still heavily limited by its environment. Everything that humans need to survive and thrive relies upon the land on which they live. Most people work and live in rural settings, producing in the ways they and their ancestors have done for hundreds of years. Anything that's manufactured is done with human-powered technologies. European states still embraced mercantilist economic policies that protected their economies by prohibiting trade with competitive states. But by 1900, some of the most dramatic transformations in human history have taken place that still largely shape our modern world. The environment no longer places limits on societal potential the way it used to. Cities are popping up throughout the Western world and people are flocking there to work in the new industrial jobs, abandoning their traditional ways of working. New technologies and machinery are being developed that transform everything relating to how humans work, live, and consume. Western states now push for free trade that allows them to exchange with states in ways mercantilism never allowed, helping them to dominate economic and political affairs around the globe. Inequalities between social classes have grown larger, and new ideologies develop that seek to radically transform society. So, how did that happen? Now, before we start, check yourself. Are you wearing any articles of cotton clothing? The answer is most likely yes, but for most people throughout history, it wasn't always this way. For Europeans specifically, they had been wearing wool clothing for most of the time we've studied so far. But starting in the 18th century, cotton textiles made in India became really popular in Britain thanks to their affordability, look, and feel. But British people buying Indian cottons was bad business for British textile makers. Two developments ultimately helped turn the tide in favor of the British, bringing about the Industrial Revolution, slaves and coal. British colonies, along with a productive relationship with the American South, meant that cotton was cheaply and readily available due to the low costs that came with enslaving others. The cotton manufacturers of India had a hard time competing, especially now that Britain was taking more and more control of India at the same time, and could control India's economy to the favor of British manufacturers. However, cottons were still being produced in an inefficient manner as they had always been, by hand. But Britain's easy access to coal helped it become the leader of global textile manufacturing. To get this coal meant to dig into mines that had the potential of flooding, And so a pump powered by a coal-fired steam engine was invented to drain the well of its water. This kicked off a chain reaction of steam-powered inventions, resulting in the first railroad and machinery that helped to more efficiently produce cotton textiles in English factories. Raw cotton came from British colonies and trading partners overseas, and coal was mined under the ground. This meant Britain didn't have to choose between growing cotton, food, or forest for fuel as all other countries around the world did during this time. Thus, Britain could industrialize at a time when others could not. Shifting economic policies during this time also helped British industries thrive. Early on in this era, Britain still relied on the economic practice of mercantilism. This meant the British government passed laws in the early 18th century 
banning the purchase of Indian textiles, ultimately to protect British textile producers. They also passed laws ensuring colonies in the Americas would continue to only provide raw materials and consume British manufactured goods. Once inventions such as the spinning mule, the power loom, and especially the cotton gin made cheap British textiles a reality, British politicians began to call for free trade policies, meaning laws would not be set up that would have an effect on trade. Thus, individuals, companies, and nations were free to trade as they pleased. Of course this happened now, because Britain would be able to beat any competitor for the availability and affordability of goods on an international market. This economic system of capitalism, as we know it today, was beginning to take root at this time. So we know that Britain was the first to industrialize, but what did this mean for the various social classes of Britain? For starters, you would think the land-holding British aristocracy might suffer because wealth isn't really being determined by land ownership any longer. That's partially true because they now had to compete for social and political influence with quote-unquote new money, meaning the merchants, business owners, and bankers whose wealth was now on level with the quote-unquote old money of the aristocracy. On the other hand, the aristocracy still owned much of the land in Britain and leased it out accordingly, so they didn't really take a hit in the pocket during this time. The wide-ranging middle class stood to benefit immensely from industrialization. The previously mentioned groups joined the aristocracy in estate homes and halls of parliament. The middle of the middle class was defined by its professionals, such as lawyers, doctors, teachers, and others. The lower middle class consisted of people who provided services such as salesmen and secretaries. The growth of this class resulted in new reforms like broadening the right to vote to men of the middle class and new expectations such as the cult of domesticity. This belief argued women of the middle class were to remain in their homes to raise children, keep a clean and welcoming home, and pursue activities or hobbies strictly within the home. It was believed women of the middle classes were not to pursue a job outside of their home. Over time, this would begin to change as women of these ranks began to gain employment in education, nursing, and secretarial positions. It's probably unsurprising for you to hear that the lower classes struggled most under the weight of this new industrial society. As work became scarce due to mechanization on farms and small farms became absorbed by larger ones, rural laborers flooded the industrial cities of England. In 150 years, England would go from an 80% rural population to an 80% urban population. With this sudden rise in cities, it meant that their growth wasn't happening in any kind of manageable way. Overcrowded, filled with factory smoke, riddled with contaminated water sources, full of crime, lacking in open space, these cities stomped life expectancy down to below 40 years of age by 1850. Factory work was anything but desirable. Workers might be expected to work 14 to 16 hours a day, six days a week during busy production times. They were paid low wages, and the work was often done by younger children, especially females, because they could be paid even lower wages and were thought to be more accepting of strict expectations. Eventually, these conditions would become so unbearable that workers would organize themselves and begin to demand change. In response to these appalling conditions, Karl Marx had put pen to paper and expressed his beliefs that would form our modern understanding of socialism and communism. Though born German, Marx spent a lot of time observing conditions in industrial Britain. From his observations, he concluded that the system of unrestricted capitalism was unsustainable 
and it would eventually be replaced through a workers' revolution. According to his belief, the workers would then go on to establish a society where everything was held in common ownership and all social class distinctions would be eliminated. Marx attempted to explain his communist ideology as a development that emerged out of inequalities that had defined societies since the beginnings of civilization. By presenting his views in a scientific manner, Marx was able to convince oppressed people throughout the world of the inevitability that his vision would become reality. Socialism and communism emerged as very powerful ideologies that had a profound effect on modern history and continue to shape our world today. It was also during this time when workers began to organize themselves into labor unions. Unions represented the collective interests of workers, and they bargained with business owners for better pay and working conditions. Unions were able to secure a minimum wage for workers, limits on working hours, and a five-day work week. They helped raise a collective voice that resulted in expanded voting rights for working-class men, eventually resulting in all men receiving the right to vote in Britain by 1918. And they helped to end harsh child labor and require education for children from ages 5 to 10. Governments also began to establish relief programs for people out of work as a way to check any growing popularity of Marxism. As standards of living rose in the 19th century, the popularity of socialism and communism did not take a grip on society in the way Marx was hoping. It wouldn't be until 1917 when Russia experienced a revolution that a communist state would emerge for the first time. As British industrialization took off, it was only natural for the benefits to be witnessed and it soon spread elsewhere. But it wasn't as easy for France, where coal wasn't as readily accessible and those pesky revolutions kept popping up. They did eventually get a national railroad going by 1860 that helped to promote industrialization throughout the nation. The U.S. started small with its New England textile mills and government investment in canals and railroads. Completing the transcontinental railroad meant a boom in iron and steel production. Germany's lack of unification until 1870 meant it came late to the party but they focused on things other than textiles, knowing they couldn't compete with British producers, and instead poured their efforts into heavy industry and got their chemical and electrical industries off to an early and highly productive start in what would become known as the Second Industrial Revolution. Later in the 19th century, Russia took steps to industrialize as well. Backward in the times, Russia had just abolished serfdom in the 1860s. They were exporting their food and raw materials, and they were importing most manufactured goods. In simpler terms, Russia's economy looked more like that of a colony than a major European power. So efforts were made by government official Sergei Witt to construct a national railroad and develop Russian industry. What became the Trans-Siberian Railroad would help link Russian cities of the West to its Siberian lands that were full of raw materials. Japan proved to be much like Russia, Germany, and France in that its government also played a significant role in helping to industrialize the nation. What made it unique was that its decision to industrialize was essentially made at gunpoint. Japan had been mostly isolated from the outside world since the early 17th century. But in 1853, American ships sailed into Tokyo and demanded that Japan permit itself to trade with the United States. Due to this threat, Japan underwent a total transformation in a period known as the Meiji Restoration. The old feudal system headed by a shogun was eliminated, and it was replaced by a constitutional government headed by the Meiji Emperor. This new government invested heavily in Japanese industrialization. The silk industry was first developed to raise Japanese finances, followed by cotton textiles. 
This allowed Japan to raise funds that helped to begin importing the raw materials, such as coal and iron, that Japan lacked. These materials were then used to help build up the Japanese military that would go on to defeat China in war in 1895 and also defeat Russia in a war in 1905. Suddenly, Japan was seen as a rising world power, and it was due to their rapid industrialization and militarization. But industrialization wouldn't come to everyone so easily. The industrialization and militarization of Western powers led to a crisis in the Ottoman Empire. The Ottomans began to witness not just Christian European militaries begin to build empires in Muslim lands across Asia and Africa, but they were also now losing territory that once belonged to them. Russians chipped away in the Black Sea region. The British expanded its influence in Egypt. The Austrians cut into the Balkan Peninsula, and the French grew their empire in what's now Algeria. Nationalist independence movements in Greece, Serbia, and elsewhere chiseled at the borders of the Ottoman Empire as well. Cheap manufactured European goods made their way into Ottoman markets, devastating craft industries within the empire. As the Ottomans took loans from Europeans, they fell into debt and became more reliant on Europeans. Something had to give. Sultan Selim had attempted some modernization, but he was overthrown by conservative groups fearing change in 1807. By 1839, the Ottomans pushed through the Tanzimat reforms that witnessed the development of industries for textiles and weaponry infrastructural developments in railroads and telegraph lines, and the adoption of a new schooling system. The Tanzimat reforms, though, only marked the start of the struggle between modernizing and conservative forces within the Ottoman Empire during the 19th century. Latin America was far more devastated economically and politically after its independence wars of the 18th century, and therefore had a harder time industrializing than its neighbors in the United States. Latin American nations struggled between liberal reformers and conservative opponents, helping promote the rise of military strongmen known as Caldeos, who established control with the support of the military. These leaders and states believed the safest economic approach during this era of industrialization was to serve as export markets that could send their raw materials like silver, copper, guano, that's bird poop for fertilizer, wild rubber, cacao, coffee, sugar, and beef to the manufacturing states of Europe and the United States. Europeans invested heavily in ensuring Latin America would keep a steady supply of raw materials flowing across the Atlantic. Industrialization meant more moving of Europeans both inside and outside of Europe. For many, it was a move from the countryside into rapidly developing urban centers. But for many others, it meant a move abroad to the Americas, where approximately 20% of them headed to Latin America. But most Europeans coming to the Americas headed to the United States. Land was affordable, jobs were plentiful, and people were attracted to new communities where people of their ethnicity had settled before them. The lands of South Africa, Australia, and New Zealand had become part of the British Empire, and thus were destinations for many British migrants. These places would become known as settler colonies, where many Brits headed to escape the negative aspects of industrial society and seek readily available jobs and land. So remember, by 1900, some of the most dramatic transformations in human history have taken place that still largely shape our modern world. The environment no longer places limits on societal potential the way it used to. 
Cities are popping up throughout the Western world, and people are flocking there to work in new industrial jobs, abandoning their traditional ways of working. New technologies and machinery are being developed to transform everything relating to how humans work, live, and consume. Western states now push for free trade that allows them to exchange with states in ways mercantilism never allowed, helping them to dominate economic and political affairs around the globe. Inequalities between social classes have grown larger, and new ideologies develop that seek to radically transform society. There it is. Because of the Industrial Revolution, the world's now going to change by leaps and bounds in the time that we have left in this class. Up next, we'll see how industrialization brings about the colonization of much of the world at the hands of these rising industrial powers, creating global inequalities that provide context for much of the injustices our world deals with to this day. If you found this helpful and want to express your thanks, please check out the PayPal in the episode description. Until next time, take care, everyone. Thank you.